Hello friends, welcome to the show. My name is Tom Broback and I'm on a mission to help high school coaches keep their athletes happy and healthy. I love playing sports growing up. From backyard football to traveling basketball to high school track and field, there is nothing better than being on a team and playing to win a game. Unfortunately, I struggle with health issues and I know your athletes do too. This inspired me to become a physical therapist and sports performance coach. This podcast will help coaches like you learn how to keep your athletes off the bench and in the game. On today's episode, I talk with Jeremy Tui. Jeremy runs his own gym in Somerset, Kentucky, where he trains high school and college athletes. Jeremy has an interesting backstory with how he got into sports performance, along with some unique thoughts on how he formed his training philosophy. Thanks, Jeremy, for taking time to be on the show, and thank you all for taking time to listen. How's work going? It's going well. So right now is an interesting time. The population's changing a little bit in my gym with basketball ending and uh, spring sports starting. So you've got tennis, baseball, softball, and track getting going. So a lot of my group is, which which as much as I like for kids to work out in season, you don't always get that. So um, it's, a, it's a lot of basketball kids coming in, a lot of football guys trying to get ready for spring football and summer football coming in. Uh, but yeah, busy as always, which is, which is never a bad thing. <laughs> Do most of your winter kids play a different spring sport? Yeah. So um, I'm, the town I'm in is is really small and the high schools are really small. So you, you pretty much have to spread kids out. So your, your typical athlete is a three-sport athlete. You don't see many kids that are basketball year-round, football year-round, or anything like that. It's it's uh, So my high school, for example, in my hometown here, uh, it's about 475 kids. So your typical athlete's playing three to five sports. It's much different than a bigger school where some of these kids, they play one sport all year round. They go for, and then sometimes their club sport uh, is bigger, a uh, bigger deal to them than their school sport. And that part always kind of uh, intrigued me because when I was growing up, the varsity sports were the biggest thing to me. Uh, but it's not always like that for every kid. And uh, it's good to hear that kids are still being involved when they can in multiple sports. We've, talked about this uh relentlessly on social media but it's still good to hear kids are interested enough in a variety there's so much uh there's so much to do out there these days whether you're involved in sports or music or school and it's really good to hear kids still have that vested interest and in not only playing one sport but can they play two three even four you said four or five sports that's that's incredible to me growing up did you play multiple sports I did. So through up, up until middle school, I played baseball, basketball, and football. And then once high school started, that was primarily baseball, growing up in a baseball family. Um, once I got to college, I had signed a scholarship to play in college. And a couple of health issues that were uh, genetic with my, uh, with one of my eyes kept me from continuing on. But yeah, uh, until high school, I was pretty much all sports, but then it was baseball for them, from then on out. Talk me more through that. What, if you're comfortable with it, what, what may, like, what medically did you have going on, and how did that affect uh, you at the time, and how did it kind of change your life going on from there? So it's interesting because that's what actually led to what I ended up doing as a career. Uh, my my father actually lost his eye when he was a teenager, and so when I was born, I, I can't think of the the name of the condition that he was born with, and that at the time they didn't have the uh, medical advances to save his eye, which we do now. But, um, 
Yeah. So, so growing up, I was, I think, 120, uh, one, 120 over 20 or 2120. Is that it? Uh, and, and so my left eye was nearly blind, and which wow. was my lead eye in baseball. Yeah. So it was my lead eye in baseball. So the, the eye that I saw a pitch with mainly, the eye that I would check my shoulder over to check a runner on first. Um, so that was an obstacle growing up through uh, sports. And then what had happened was once the ball started getting hit a little higher in college and thrown a little faster, it just became near impossible to see. So that's when I thought, okay, I'd like to do something involved in sports, but without playing a sport. And that's what led me to nutrition, which eventually led to strength and conditioning. Thank you for sharing that. I think stories like that at first are super hard to share. I had asthma growing up, uh, different, you know, very different thing than, than what you went through, but it was, it's like, I never want to talk about it. I never want to show anyone like my inhaler was in my bag. It was like super embarrassing. I would get sick all the time. And then later on in life, you realize those kind of obstacles, either if you respond correctly, they allow you to overcome adversity, to work harder, to try harder, to find new things, to find the weight room, to find nutrition, and eventually lead to your future career. So you can help people that have gone through similar experiences like you. And at the time, it's awful. It's like, why do I have to deal with this? Like, why me? None of my friends have to do with this. No, None of my siblings have to do with this. I'm the one who has to go through this and you feel very isolated and alone and it's super challenging. And every kid probably has some kind of thing that they have to go through, whether it's a physical condition, mental condition, emotional condition. How have you been able to either relate or help kids who have struggled with a a certain condition as they try to compete in their sports? So that's, that's a cool question because I talked to coach Griffith about this the other day. Um, one thing the gym is great about is instilling confidence in the kids that might not be the most talented on the field or may have something holding them back on the field, like you said. Um, and, and that's where I think as a strength coach, we can instill a different kind of confidence where that athlete can find their purpose in sports that may not pertain to their God-given abilities. Um, and that's, that's really where I relate is being able to help a kid find confidence with sports or around their friends. That doesn't necessarily depend on the amount of talent they have playing that sport Uh, I think one of the things as coaches we need to be more focused on rather than just developing uh, athletes or athletic development is realizing these are humans too and uh, instilling confidence goes way beyond sports way beyond you know school and and that's going to make a person more comfortable with their life was there a point in your coaching career where you realized I can use the struggles that I had as an athlete to help these kids. Like there, was there a turning point for you in that regard? Well, so, so when I realized I wasn't going to be able to continue baseball, um, I had a couple of friends reach out to me and say, we realize sports are pretty much your and your family's life. Uh, we think we found a way for you to stay involved. And that's when I was introduced to registered dietitians, sports registered dietitians. Uh, and so that was kind of the, the avenue for me to continue on in, in, in sports. And that's what led eventually to going overseas and, and finding a way to still be involved and in, which, which now is my passion. I see now that I enjoy life more as a coach than as a player. Guests listening to the podcast right now, they're like, all right, this guy was a nutritionist. Now he runs a gym. Talk me through that story of how you transitioned from one area of, of health and fitness and now in that sports performance development role. Yeah, so at, at UofL, there was a professor that was – she worked with a lot of professional athletes. Um, 
I think she worked with a lot of Predators down in Nashville, Tennessee. She worked with a lot of uh, Tennessee Titans. And so all my connections and all the uh, all the uh, networking I was doing was her nutrition. And so just uh, she wasn't able to meet me one day in class. And, and I was able to uh, get with UofL's strength and conditioning coach and just shadow him for a day. He needed the body to help. His interns were out of town. And then I realized it was a lot of fun, just helping him with the football guys, helping him around that environment. I had a lot of fun. So fast forward a couple of months, and I'm going over to Europe for a nutritional internship uh, with the registered dietitian. Once I get over there, the registered dietitian kind of wasn't sure about having an English-speaking assistant. She was worried about the confusion it would cause with her clientele, so she backed out last minute, and I'm standing in Barcelona, Spain with no job and paying rent on a apartment. So the organization that was in charge of a lot of the overseeing of students was able to get me set up with a really high profile, really cool little performance facility called, called Global Performance. And they work with Barcelona soccer team, tons of professional tennis and basketball athletes. It's a pretty cool gig. Um, and, and from there, I was able to work with athletes again. At that point, I thought, okay, I'm this might be my calling because I'm happier doing this and we're interested in doing this and getting the experience of working with athletes at that caliber made me realize, you know, this is a pretty cool thing and this is what I want to do. When you first started working with athletes, where was your mindset at in terms of confidence that you can make a change in their lives? I really had next to next to none because um, again, yeah, it was a thing where, as an athlete myself, I thought, you know, I've been through this process. I've strength trained myself, but can I deliver this message and can I teach this to another another human? Can I respond to things that come up unexpectedly? Can I work around sports schedules? Can I do all this from a strategic standpoint, from a scientific standpoint that helps this person get better? And and, and at the beginning, I couldn't. I, you know, I, I, I stressed. I was stressed. I was um, any any sort of nick or ache or whatever injury. I felt like it was my fault, not you know attributable to anything else but um yeah so at the beginning i, I really struggled and I, I really just had to grow as a as a coach in that regard i only ask that because i think a lot of coaches go through that a little bit of ignorance is bliss when you first start when i look back to when i first started working with athletes uh, in a weight room setting i knew how to copy and paste the program like okay this is the program they're doing like i know these exercises i know like what sets and reps are and I can answer some questions, but now I look back and how much I I've learned. And it's like, wow, I didn't know like anything behind the why I didn't know any kind of what exercise to substitute for what, how it actually applied to sport, uh, any kind of periodization schemes. There were so many different things that I was just clueless at, but we all get started somehow, somewhere, someone. And I think it's super easy to do when you are younger and you're just exposed to it and kind of your situation, you were almost not forced into it, but you didn't really have another choice. It's it's like, all right, this one situation I was really looking forward to fell apart. Now I got to make the best of it. I'm over in Europe. I got to find something to do. I want to work with athletes. This is the way to go. So it seems like in some regards, that might've been an awesome way to start. And in other regards, I'd be absolutely terrified if I were you, but it seems like you made it out. Okay. Yeah, I think I really underestimated the relationship side of coaching. Um, you know, I spent every minute outside of work reading every single book I could, 
learning the rep scheme, learning all periodization schemes, learning exercise selection progressions and all that. But in reality, I was beginning every workout talking about training and ending every workout talking about training. And there was really no, you know, connection to any of the athletes. Uh, I, I didn't feel like I knew any personally. I felt like it was pretty much X's and O's every hour of every day. And I wasn't getting a lot of fulfillment out of what I was doing. Uh, but then once I reached out to some veteran coaches and started learning, hey, this is a people's business, um, that's when it really started feeling like I was doing what I was meant to be doing. I'm glad you brought up the relationship, Pete. Any coach knows that's that's important, and the best coaches know it's the most important. For me, I just turned 30 uh, last year, and for the last 10 years, I've really struggled with the relationship piece. Not so much that I knew it was important, but I always was working with athletes, and I was trying to be their friend. I was close to them in age. It was a lot easier just to try to like make friends. That's all I've done my whole life. I've never really been in like this prominent coaching or leadership role where I had to, you know, control the room, get things going, be nice, but be, you know, keep things orderly. And and if things get out of hand, you got to control that too. So I always struggled with, okay, I can't be their friend, but I'm close to them in age. So I don't know if they look up to me as like a leader or as a coach. Did you ever struggle with that line between, uh, you know, you want to, take care of them and support them and be there for them. But also you're not trying to be buddy, buddy because you're there as a coach and as a leader and as a mentor to them. I definitely did at the beginning because just naturally we all want to be well received by who we work with. Mm -hmm. Um, I I definitely was playing the buddy, buddy role and I was, I was um, being too much of another teenager and their friend. And, but then I made the realization it, it, was, it was actually cool. I had to, I had to get firm with an athlete one time just because she was on her phone a lot. She wasn't really, uh, focused. You you could just tell that she wasn't all there that day, and and I just steered her in the right direction, saying, "Hey, we're here to work. We're here to get better." Um, and then she sent me a text an hour later that said, "Thank you for keeping me in line. I needed that." And that was a nice reminder that we all need to be held accountable, e- even if it means you know that awkward situation of not necessarily getting on to a kid, but uh, making sure they remember the purpose of whatever what we're doing. Um, but yeah, it is a fine line. I, and kids, kids want that relationship, but they also want to be held accountable to improve because they, they know at the end of the day that as coaches, we're there to make them better and that we care. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. So yeah, definitely at the beginning, I struggled with that. But just that little situation of that athlete reaching out to me and saying she appreciated, you know, me getting onto her was kind of a wake up call. Like, okay, this is, this is what they want. So it's, don't be afraid to, to hold each of them accountable. The phone thing I found out is is something you kind of have to nip in the bud right away because you let one kid on their phone um, and if they're not if it's not related to the workout like they're not tracking their weights or their sets and reps then every other kid's gonna want to be on it and then if you try to discipline one kid they're gonna be like well you let so and so use it and it it can get out of control really quickly and it's hard it's hard for coaches to uh, address the problem right away. Like the first time you see it, you got to take care of it and set the precedent. It's really easy just to kind of, oh, it's a Friday, like let them be, you know, let them do this. They're a little bit late or they're goofing off a little bit. It's really hard to consistently be consistent with your message, with your, I don't know if you want to call them rules, but like guidelines or behaviors. Um, And it's really easy to slip because we're humans too. And sometimes we just want to sit and be on our phone or we want to, uh, not be as prepared as we want to. We want to leave a little early, show up a little bit, you know, things like that. Like it's natural. Like we're humans. We're not robots either. 
Um, but it seems like you've done a good job of kind of navigating those waters and, and learning from your trials and errors to, to help out your athletes best you can when those situations come up. Yeah, I think it's just being relatable. It's, um, they they want to be on TikTok all day. They want to be on Instagram all day. So just finding what, what interests them is regarding what they would want to talk about during a workout, find out what's going on in their life. That way they want to unload all that information to you. And that keeps the conversation going and keeps attention in the gym rather than them looking over at their bag, looking over at the table, wanting to check in on what their friends are doing. If you can find out, you know, the personal information of what's going on in their life, you can keep the, you can keep the workout moving. Uh, you can keep the, you can keep the wheel spinning, I guess, so to speak. And then, um, from there, you really don't run into that issue as much, or that's the success that I've found is just seeing what they have going on personally and then capitalizing on that during a workout. So you go over to Europe and your whole life changes. You thought you're going to be a dietitian and now you're doing sports performance. And at some point you come back to the U S and to me, it sounds like you got to start all over because you've, you haven't worked here. I don't know what your connections were. I don't know where your vision was. Talk me through coming back to the United States and getting your feet started again in coaching. Yeah, so that was really probably the scariest point of my life because I come back to the United States having no clue what to do, who to talk to. Um, at that point, I really didn't have a following or follow anybody on the right people on Instagram to, to steer me the right way in strength and conditioning. So um, living with my parents in Somerset, Kentucky, and just by chance, a friend of mine who's a high school softball coach said, hey, my father-in-law runs a gym, and if you want a personal train at his facility, pick up a couple of clients and go from there. So my brother introduced me to two kids, two high school baseball players, and I explained to them, you know, here's my background. Here's a little background I have working professional athletes. And they're like, well, that's cool. That's more than most guys in this small town. So from there, we started personal training. And I look back and cringe at those workouts because, you know, it's your wide grip lap pull down three by 12 to 15, your, uh, your bench press three by 12 to 15. It was pretty much just sheer bodybuilding. Uh, and while those kids, of course, were seeing hypertrophy uh, adaptations, it wasn't athletic development. And, and one of the issues were, was, uh, a lot of the movements we did in Europe were flywheel based, which you don't see anywhere in public gyms. So, so most of the things I had learned with my first internship in strength and conditioning was flywheel based. So now I've got to make it work with dumbbells, kettlebells, squat racks, cable machines. So, and then, I, and then going from there, I just started looking into the right strength and conditioning coaches, the, the reputable, the reputable voices, the reputable, uh, you know, opinions, things like that. And that's when I started to learn how to help athletes move better, how to, how to, how to help athletes, you know, it's not so single joint isolation stuff. Uh, and then that just took off from there. Two athletes turned to four, uh, just word of mouth, four turned to eight. And that's kind of where it's grown from there. And I'm still here in Somerset, Kentucky, in my small town with over 150 athletes. Wow. That's a really cool story. I would be absolutely terrified just like you were. You're just trying to get things going and you're, it's, it's amazing if, uh, just sometimes the disconnect between the United States and, and in Europe where you could tell me you worked with the most elite club or, or gym or organization over there. And I have no idea who they are. So then you come back here, it's like, wow, like doesn't matter what your experience was. You're basically starting over. Most people don't know the sports performance world over in Europe or in other, other continents or countries uh, around the world. Um, so you mentioned you, you went from two athletes to four and now you're up to one fifty. 
are you still at the same gym you started at or have you opened up your own gym? Like what has that process been like? So once I started to grow around 20 plus athletes, we started shopping around uh, our town for vacant facilities. And so my wife came up with the idea one day, well, well, your dad owns an insurance building. Why don't we just use the bottom of it? And to me, that was a terrible idea because the basement was small. It was choppy. It was a bunch of offices. But then my dad agreed. He said, we can make this work. Let's knock the buildings down and uh, see how much room we got. So we cleared the space out and it turns out it was about 2,000 square feet, 2,500 square feet, and uh, started filling in gym equipment just for the time being. Uh, to me, it was a short-term plan. I thought, well, I'll be in a huge facility with turf and, you know, sore neck stuff uh, up and down, up and down or perform better stuff up and down. And uh, three years later, I'm still in this basement, still adding athletes, still adding equipment. Uh, I got the cool, cool, cool murals up, uh, painted by one of the mothers of one of my athletes. But yeah. So just now, of course, my wife makes me, or reminds me every day that it was her idea for my gym. That's now become the home of, you know, TSP or whatever. And, uh, yeah, so it's worked out pretty cool from there. That's good that uh, your wife got a, a huge win and, and keeps reminding you of that. I think often us as coaches, we think we know everything. We think we know what's best and we have all the greatest ideas and our significant others sometimes don't get enough credit to keeping us in line, coming up with good plans, good ideas, and that we can uh, listen a little bit more. So I'm glad to hear that she's part of the team and, and coming through with you. If you had to do it again, would you do the same route? Kind of go, hey, you know, this isn't my ideal space, but this is what works for me. And, and we're going to grow and build out of here. Would you take that same uh, route? I would just because it's cool being number one, the family, the family building. And number two, the kids just the, the murals are cool. They create a cool environment. The space is cool where it's located is great for the athletes to get there to and from school. Uh, it's just been a lot of fun uh, where we're, where we are. And it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's just a, it's just a cool little spot. It's a cool little hole in the wall. Um, it's just we're really happy here and yeah definitely wouldn't change anything about my situation right now do you plan oh so you plan staying there for a while probably i do want to move to a bigger facility one day once it continues to grow i've started uh being contractually based with teams uh so now i'm looking at groups of 20 to 30 athletes i've got a group of soccer girls that are 40 or 50 girls that's near impossible in my facility i have to go to their school and work out with them there in their football facility so ultimately I would like something bigger, but I see this being my home for quite a while. That is nice. One of the struggles in at least Minnesota is when like winter comes so much of the outdoor ability to work out goes away, whether you're doing sprints outside where you're doing jumping, you know, like plyometrics or you're doing uh change of direction, agility drills, things like, like anything that you can do outside, it gets really restricted and it's become much better because there's so many more uh, indoor turf areas with, with domes and even with some gyms having a lot more indoor turf. Do you struggle with uh, uh, like change of seasons where winter comes and it's just like, I can't use the outside as much? Or are you in a place where you don't really use outside facilities as much as you'd like to with your athletes? Yeah, so once it gets cold and it starts snowing here, we, the last two years we've gotten some probably close to half a foot foot uh, snows um, it, we definitely get it outside and run hills and sprints a lot less um, one cool thing though is so if you if you look up somerset high school football 
you'll see one of the coolest turf football fields in the country. Uh, and so with that, with that, with that resource, we're able to at least regardless of whether go out and do something. Um, obviously we make exceptions if it's way too cold, but, uh, with the new turf facility that we have right next to us, it, it's, it's made that process a lot easier. You know, we don't have three grass fields from our three high schools. Uh, but yeah, we definitely struggle once it gets really cold and there's snow on the ground and be, due to my facility size, we're not able to do as much running and jumping. I'm just pulling up the picture that you said. It looks like you got, so like purple, gold are the colors. Um, yep. but it looks like you have this kind of like sprint area design, like not in the end zone, but beyond the end zone, beyond uh, there's like a, a, a marked out area for five yards, 10 yards, 15. That seems like just the perfect, even if someone's using the field, there's still areas to sprint. You obviously have the track there and a pretty cool background. So you're not lying about that. That looks like a pretty cool, I'll have to come visit sometime, get some sprint yeah. work in. That, that, that seems, and it's so nice just to have, those resources near you, you can work with them. Athletes buy in a lot better when they feel like, Hey, like this is a cool place. Like this is ours. Like we, we can be happy here. We can be successful here. I think that buy-in becomes a lot better. So that is cool. Yeah. You're not lying there. That seems like a pretty cool field uh, to work out in and also to go to games and, and be part of a community and hopefully have some, some winning teams on there too. And I have had some really accommodating coaches allowing me keys to get into basketball facilities, which we rarely run over 30 or 40 yards anyway. So a basketball facility works really well. Um, so that's been the biggest help as far as making things work in the winter. Uh, coaches uh, or uh, parents of kids that I train are maybe middle school or high school coaches, and they allow us to get into basketball courts. And we do a lot of our sprint and speed and agility stuff there. That's probably been the biggest difference in the winter training, just having those guys uh, be available for me to get into those facilities. But yeah, we try to get out on that cool turf when we can. And that small field you saw is actually for kids to play football during football games. It's a pretty neat idea. Uh, that is that is cool because kids yeah. are going to do that anyways. They're going to find an empty piece of grass uh, during a varsity game, and there's going to be a ton of them getting together. So that's really cool they incorporated that when they designed the field. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, uh, that's what uh, – the, the field went viral on Twitter a couple of months ago. And that's what everybody was talking about, how cool that small video, that little field was. Cause just because, yeah, like you said, they're either rolling around the grass or playing underneath the bleachers, and that kind of keeps things in control over there on a regulated, uh, measured outfield. Gets all the chaos together. I That was me yeah. in middle school. We'd go to these varsity games, and you just find your buddies, and you go start throwing the football around and maybe watch a little bit of the game. But, um, no, those are always fun memories growing up. So let's say like a coach like me comes over and wants to watch uh, you work with your athletes. What kind of training should I expect to see in your weight room? So a lot of what I build my philosophy on is uh, Zach DeCon's five foundational uh, movements. Uh, so so the, when a, if a kid comes to me, the first thing they learn is the athletic position. I want to teach them how to properly uh, be able to hinge, be able to squat, be able to uh, press, pull, obviously, jump and brace, uh, ISO core. But um correctly knowing how to utilize their hips and their spine, their knees and their ankles. Uh, a lot of what I do from a progression standpoint, from a programming standpoint, comes from Coach Dakin uh, at TCU. Um, it's funny, I'm actually making a video for him today, somewhat of a testimony for his book, Movement Over Maxes. Uh, so you'll see a lot of hip hinging. You'll see a lot of unilateral squatting. You know, I, I adopt a lot of Mike Boyle's philosophies on unilateral squatting. Um, you'll see very few back squatting. 
I just, especially with the amount of low back issues I see with rotational athletes, not, not, uh, you know, I think it's pars fractures that you see a lot of, um, just, you'll, you'll see a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, shoulder friendly pressing, a lot of hammer pressing. You'll see a lot of, you'll see a lot of rowing. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, I always try to, I, you know, it's, it's, the, let's see if I get this expression right. I would rather go, I'd rather be an inch short than a mile too far or a mile short than an inch too far. I'd rather be a mile short than an inch too far. So just about everything I do in program is based on uh, what I perceive as joint friendly movements. Um, I like the back squat. I think there's a lot of um, application to the back squat in programming. Um, do I use it often? Probably not. Um, I rarely ever straight bar deadlift. It's pretty much all trap bar for me. Um, I don't do a lot of Olympic lifting. We do with my football athletes just because when I do in the case where if an athlete's going to play uh for a college, if he signed a scholarship, she signed a scholarship. And I know that program, Olympic lifts, will obviously progress Olympic lifts, will um, learn Olympic lifts, will we'll get stronger Olympic lifts. But I'm a big trap bar jump guy. I, I think power development's just just sufficient there. So from a programming standpoint, that's kind of what I, the area where I hover around. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really just uh, not necessarily taking a lot of ideas from coaches and jumbling it into one, but just you know, taking more joint friendly movements and what I think puts an athlete in a safer position to get better. So I agree with you. I think we can do other things instead of uh, a barbell back squat. Do you, so most people don't back squat because they think their risks are too high. Do you think the rewards of other squat variations can match the rewards of back squatting? I do. Uh, it's, uh, so I think Mike Boyle has a cool little segment on this on the riff for the split squat. Um, it's research has shown it's it's just as much, if not more, uh, transfer to sport as the back squat. So in my position, if you can put an athlete in in a situation where there's less risk, but the reward is just the same, why wouldn't you do that anyways? What other squat variations? So rear foot elevates split squat. What other uh, squat variations do you use with your, with your athletes and which ones do you think that they like the best? So my athletes love single leg squats. Um, we we stand on the uh, the words escaping me the pallets, but we'll stand on um, uh, the pallets and we'll single leg squat. We will split squat. We'll we but my kids love the safety bar squat. They love safety barring unilaterally. Um, so and we use K box. We use the K box squat. We uh, use the eccentric machine. Um, so as far as from a favorite standpoint goes, my kids hate roof and elevate split squat. Is it's as good as a movement as it is. Uh, but I would definitely say single leg squat. They really like doing number one. It looks cool. Number two, it takes a lot of uh, skill and a lot of strength to execute. You mentioned you like trap bar jumps a lot. How do you start an athlete out with them and how do you progress their weights over time? So we really only move. Well, with, the, with dumbbell loaded jumps, we work about 10% of their total body weight, 20% of their total body weight with a trap bar jumps. I really start with the, they'll learn to box jump to learn how to utilize their knees and their hips first. See, one thing a lot of kids do is they put their knees in valgus positions when they jump. And so from there, I like to teach them how to jump to begin with. Uh, Lee Taft had a cool video on this the other day. It's so basic and kids don't want to do it, but so many kids have to learn how to jump first. Then from there, I will teach them how to do loaded jumps with dumbbells. Uh, then we'll move to banded jumps, banded assisted jumps, and then we move on to trap bar once they can move weight comfortably. Uh, so many kids want to round their backs. They want to uh, they want they want to move their hips too quickly for their knees, or their knees too quickly for their hips. And so that's really how I progress from there as far as programming. 
When your athletes come to the gym, do they usually want input into the exercise selection or do they buy into what you program pretty well and they're, and they're just happy to get after it and, and get a good workout in? I allow autonomy. So, so if I know there's, there's variations that can lead to the same adaptation, I, I do ask, you know, is, is there a movement you like more better or here's these movements that I like for this pattern, which of those do you particularly like? Because uh, in the end, we're trying to create an environment where they enjoy strength training. Because if you've got an athlete who you could have, I always joke, you have Matt Ray of Alabama football, you could give his program to your high school football guys. But if they hate doing it, they're not going to show up every day and do it. Uh, they're not going to buy in simply by, or just by the idea that it's a good, it's a great strength program. They want to enjoy it. They want to feel like they're improving. They want to be bought in from a standpoint of, I, I, they don't want to wake up and dread, oh, I've got this movement first. Or, oh, I've got to do this stuff today. They want to have some input. They want to be able to say, you know, I get to do this today because strength training should be fun. That's the only way you're going to get consistency and buy-in. One of my favorite things I've seen in a program, and it was for, you know, high school kid who's been working out for a while and, and has a good understanding of the weight room, is it just said squat variation. They could pick which squat they wanted to do. is three by six. So it's like if you want to do rear vert elevated, if you want to do – pistol squat if you want to do safety bar you know squat there i think that a little bit of autonomy for the athlete really helps instead of saying you have to do this you have to do that getting a little bit of input from them uh, it seems like you, you do that a little bit but also seems like you have a really good structure in place that kids know that um you have their best interests in mind you're picking things that are not only um safe for them joint friendly for them but also this is the best way to get better at, at moving capabilities to help you with your sport. Um, a lot of coaches I talk to, they, they, their frequency in the weight room can really vary. Sometimes it's twice a week. Sometimes it's, you know, micro doses daily. What's a typical athlete working out with you? How often are they coming in? How long are they staying? And is that kind of a year on process? So I've typically got an athlete three days a week and that's year round. Um, I have learned that in season, most of my high school athletes are going to make it two days a week. And a lot of the athletes I deal with are never in the, never in an off season. So I've got kids that only come in two days a week. Um, and that's a, that's a rare exception. But um, I would say most of my athletes are three days a week, just based on what their schedule can allow. Um, they're not getting out till three 30. Most kids don't want to get up at 5 a.m. to work out. Uh, and then, like I said, the population I deal with is primarily three to five sport athletes, and they just can't devote three or more days a week to the to the certain training. And so we make it work the way the best we can. And I think that's where the art of coaching comes from is being able to adjust to each kid's scenario and help them progress. I'm usually not a fan of athletes coming in at like six a.m. to work out. I do understand if there's a time constraint; it's the only time they can get in, the only time the weight room's available. It's better than nothing. I did see Mike Boyle post the other day, though, that sometimes that early morning routine helps prepare the kids for later in life when they have to go to work at 7 a.m. or they have to go to class at 7 a.m. or if they're playing a college sport, they're going to have morning workouts. So it's kind of looking ahead and preparing them to be accountable, to show up on time, to get to bed early and do those things. And I hadn't thought about it like that. I only thought about it from the immediate uh risk return ratio of they're getting less sleep. They're, they're not going to go to bed early. They're probably not going to work out as hard. Um, so I, I guess I can see some benefit in that regard of 
if you're looking at the long-term play, the early morning workouts. But it is nice to know some coaches are pushing for the afternoon. I always felt I worked out way better in the afternoon, especially when I was in high school and college. I had more energy. I had more uh, focus. I had more determination, motivation, whatever word you want to use. So I like to see kind of those afternoon workouts. And I think most kids uh, probably enjoy it better, but hopefully they're getting more out of it each time they come in and they can be with their friends and then they have the rest of the night to do whatever they want. So I like, I like the way that, that you uh, push for those afternoon workouts because that's not always the case with, with, with every coach and with every athlete um, across the country. Did you, when you were an athlete growing up, did you have a preference uh, either for the weight room in general? And if so, like when did you start, figuring out like, Hey, weight room's a benefit to me. I can use this to, to help my career and help my, my athletic career. I, I loved strength training when I was an athlete, but the problem was I want to, I want to go back in time and choke myself because I wasted so much time doing these preacher curls, tricep press down, uh, lateral raises. You know, I, I worked the pretty muscles. Uh, I worked the single joint isolation movements. Uh, it, it's so frustrating to look back at the time I wasted and I got all my workouts from Jay Cutler muscle tech fitness magazines, you know, uh, but I loved it, but, but in the wrong regard, I wanted the pump. I wanted to fill the sleeves. Um, so, so like your typical teenage boy, I was doing a lot of things that should, that don't translate to sport in any way, uh, <laughs> that just ho- hopefully make you look for your female, look good for your female classmates. So yeah, it was, uh, I, I love the white room, but, but not the way you're supposed to as a, as an athlete. Well, the problem is some of that stuff deters from your athletic performance. It's it's going against what you're trying to get at. So it's not so much that it's, you know, quote, waste of time, but also could be detrimental to the abil- the way you can perform your injury risk. Uh, obviously, opportunity costs if you're spending two and a half hours in the gym three to four times a week and you're not getting as much as you can out of it. You could be t- spending that time working on your sport, working on your skills, watching film, doing homework, hanging out, like doing other things to help you be a better person, better athlete, a uh, better human, better mover. And instead you're on, you know, set 12 of preacher curls and you're just, you're, it's, yeah. it's, it's not so much that it's like a neutral effect. It's a negative effect. And we're trying to be better as coaches to be more, to educate more people, both other coaches and other athletes and parents that there where you have figured things, some things out in sports performance that this is a better way. This is a better option. Looking up things on Google or back in the day, like looking at magazines, that's going to get you somewhere, but maybe not the way that you want to go. Uh, do a lot of your athletes when, when they first come in, do they have any kind of training history or training education? Or are they really coming in with zero sense of what to do in the weight room? For the most part, they're new to strength training when they start with me. Uh, so, so from from that standpoint, I'm I'm lucky in a way where I get to introduce them to strength training the right way from the get go. Occasionally, I do have the the athlete come in who's been watching TikTok for a year and a half or two years, and you know they they they're, they've been doing the training that we've been talking about. You know, they've been doing the stair stepper, kicking their legs back. They're doing the preacher curls for five sets, uh, and that's where I've got to that's probably my biggest challenge as a coach is changing that mindset of, you know, we're not here to just feel like we need to be crawling out the door when we're done. That we need to be filling our sleeves before we're done. Uh, that's been one of the hardest 
biggest struggles for me is, is maneuvering around what a lot of the kids see as optimal training uh, and, and what they should be doing uh, because aesthetics is the primary factor with a lot of teenage athletes, um, which, which we, we've all been there. We, we all want to look better and that's the primary reason a lot of us take up training. So, you know, I don't fight that. I don't, I don't demean that. I don't, I'm never condescending towards that. I just try to educate them the right way. You know, here's why we train that way. But from the standpoint of how kids come to me, it's usually they've never had training before ever in their life. COVID has had a huge impact on gyms, uh, to say the least. A lot of gyms haven't made it. A lot of gyms have had to adjust. A lot of athletics have had to change priorities and schedules and things like that. What changes have you made in the last, I don't know, maybe six months or a year that have really benefited not only your coaching, but your athletes' performance, uh, both with you and, and on the field? So COVID was actually great for my business in a way that um, with working with primarily high school athletes every day, I have to wait till 3.30 for them to get out of school and get to my facility and warm up and, and train. With COVID, when they were out of school, I could see kids all day, all day, every day. And then not only that, with COVID, my online clientele grew um, tenfold. Uh, so, so from a standpoint of coaching from a distance uh, perspective has really grown. And that's really, that's really been a new facet of my uh, business was working with kids through, you know, uh, zoom or through, through watching uh, their movements through a, through a phone, whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, I've gotten better at what uh, I've grown as a coach watching through video, watching kids move and progress from there. Uh, COVID's uh, changed a lot as far as what, how I've had to manage people and how I've had to manage my time, but it's, it, it's been only pretty much good things. One of the quotes on your walls is winners are not born, they are self-made. And it seems like in your career, you've, you've really self-made yourself, both overcoming adversity, um, changing continents, going over to Europe, coming back, starting your own gym, getting your own place, uh, working with other uh, with other schools, with other teams, uh, helping athletes be their best selves. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time, and I look forward to uh, seeing your coaching career grow and develop and, and getting the, the best results you can with your athletes. So thank you, and uh, look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate you having me.